0: This morning's message is on Psalm 139, if you'd like to turn with me to Psalm 139, and we'll read that together. To the choir master, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Our Heavenly Father, truly how great you are. And it's a fearful and intimidating thing, Father, to stand up and to declare who you are and to feel that we've done it justice. But God, you are gracious, you love us, we are your children. And we plead with you this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to see your glory, that you would help us to see how magnificent you are and that it would affect us in the way that we think and live. Bless this time, Father. Help us, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I believe it was last spring when we started randomly preaching on the Psalms. Um, We heard from Psalm 31, 84, 16, 23, 148, and today we're doing 139. And it's been spread out between Pastor Josh and Matt and Kirk and me. But this has not been just some arbitrary thing just to kind of fill in time where gaps were needed to be filled. It's it's a deliberate effort to avoid neglecting the richness and the value of the Old Testament. Yes, we live under the New Covenant. But the Old Testament was the starting place. It's the beginning of God's progressive revelation. It's the unfolding of His purpose for the creation. And it's the foundation of His redemptive plan through Christ. But the Old Testament also reveals much to us about who God is and who man is as well. This is what makes the Old Testament poetry, in particular the Psalms, so meaningful to us. We all love the Psalms. We speak of them frequently. We read them frequently, mainly because they meditate on the truth about who God is and they connect it with our emotions through the means of such practical example, much in the way Jesus did with his parables, right? God gave David particularly... uh, a skill at being able to do this. David loved God. He loved meditating on God and his word, and he was emotional, he was poetic, and he was musical. If you remember, it was David who used to play for Saul when Saul's spirit was tormented. David was skilled at this. I believe David wrote half of the Psalms. I think it's 75 of the Psalms were written by David. And many of them start with this instruction to the choir master, a psalm of David. They were intended for the use of the chief musician in leading music. Can you imagine a more fitting place for David's writings than to be played or sung or expressed in worship of God in the temple? I can't. I can't think of a better fitting place for it. In fact, there are many songs even today, some of which that we've even sung here in our worship, that are directly quoting the Psalms of David because they are so full of rich truth about God and uh, just this deep expression in in an emotional way. And that's why we're all drawn to them. Psalm 139 does not disappoint either. Psalm 139 is not a narrative. It's not some deep theological instruction like many of the first halves of Paul's letters. It's none of these things. Psalm 139 does, though, meditate on truth. But it is simple to digest, and it relates to every one of us in a very practical and a very personal way. Notice that, if you look over that psalm, notice that, until the very last few verses, the only two individuals that exist are David and God. That's it. It's a conversation between the two of them. David speaking to God. But you and I could easily insert ourselves into Psalm 139 and make the psalm personal to us. And my hope is that while we make our way through this psalm, that it does become personal for you that you walk away today encouraged by God about his care for you, and that you were also made to be in awe of him. Because it's also a very humbling psalm. It leaves you with a sense of awe before such a great, powerful, and majestic God. And it's why David brackets 139 with this call for God to examine him, to expose him, to search him out. Verse 1, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's a psalm like this that exposes us, who we really are. It exposes the way we think and feel and live in light of our Creator. And it guides us to a place that is stable and true. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way. He spoke directly about Psalm 139, and he said, Like a lighthouse, this holy song casts a clear light even to the uttermost parts of the sea and warns us against that practical atheism which ignores the presence of God and so makes a shipwreck of the soul. So my hope is that as we study this psalm today, we'll both be encouraged but also that we would be examined. I'm certain that there's various ways that we could break this psalm down, divide it up, entitle the sections of it, but for the sake of the ability to follow along with what I'm doing this morning, I'm going to divide it in four parts of six verses each. The first six verses, they meditate on God's omniscience. The second set of verses, this next six, they focus on God's omnipresence. The next six verses, they focus on God's omnipotence. And the last six are David's humble and worshipful responses. So let's start with the omniscience of God, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is the main thesis statement of David's psalm. It's the main point of what David is trying to convey. But it begs a question, is God learning something? David says, search me and know me. Are there things that God doesn't know? Is he unaware and he must learn by searching it out? Is that the problem? He looks down and says, oh no, I had no idea David was doing this or experiencing that. I better look into this. Is that what David is saying? I don't believe that's Dave, what David's communicating here. The best way I could describe what David is trying to convey here is that God's knowledge of, of, of us is so extreme, it's as if he's done the most intense examination of your life so that there's nothing new to discover or to be understood. It is completely understood. I mean, literally nothing, even the smallest minute detail. God knows it all. God knows you, and the knowledge is so extreme and so thorough and deep. There's nothing physiological. There's nothing experiential. There's nothing intellectual, emotional, or spiritual that God does not have the absolute fullest possible knowledge of all of those things. I really think that's what David's conveying. And think about that for a moment when it comes to yourself. There's this massive universe, what, hundreds of billions of galaxies, over billions and billions and billions of light years of expanse, and on this tiny little speck of a planet resides an infinitesimally small creature called you. Just fill your name in the blank. And God always knows you seamlessly at every instant. You are never misplaced. You are never missed or ignored. You are constantly known in every respect by God. God knows it all. R.C. Sproul once said this, and I'm loosely translating because I don't have the exact quote, but he once said that if there was a single molecule, just one, in all of the creation that was not under God's control, he would cease to be a sovereign God. And I would like to add that if there was a single molecule in all the creation that God did not know about, he would not be an omniscient God. He would not be the powerful God that he's described to us in his word. And this is an amazing reality that should leave us all awestruck. It really should. Sometimes when I'm walking around in the back of my property, I see the beautiful wooded areas all around me. And I look around at how beautiful it is around me, and I think, God is fully aware of every one of the thousands of trees that are around me right now. More than that, God knows every part of every tree. In fact, God knows all the weeds around me, every blade of grass, every bug. He even knows every single piece of dirt that resides in the ground beneath. Really, God knows every molecule that makes up everything around me, even what's in the air. He holds it all together by the word of His power. There's nothing that God doesn't know about. David says in verse 2 and 3, You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Let me tell you, there is so much to these statements that goes beyond a casual reading. This psalm could make up for a sermon series. I'm sure Josh would have a heyday with this. There, There is so much here. But these couple verses are what Josh often refers to as a merism. So merism is a way of looking at the extremes to describe the entire whole, if that makes sense. So look at it this way. During the day, most people are either up and about, or they're sitting down. Or they're going somewhere, or they're lying down. Does that make sense? So these are the most basic descriptions of your constant activity. You're either sitting, or you're lying, or you're going, you're up and about. These are the most basic descriptions. In other words, it doesn't matter what you're doing or where you are, God knows entirely what you're doing at every moment. Every single moment of the day, God knows what you're doing. You You, personally. He knows your thoughts, your intentions, your plans. He knows your motivations behind your sitting and your rising and your going and your lying down. Very humbling, is it not? We don't often think about it in those terms. Most of the time we're blissfully ignorant of the fact that God does know everything about us at every moment. But God does know you intimately when you're sleeping, when you're up and interacting with your family, when you're at work, when you're at the store, when you're recreating, and on and on and on. It doesn't matter what you're doing, God is intimately aware of everything, every aspect of it. There is never a moment when God is not fully aware of you. There is also not a moment when God is unaware of our sinful thoughts and intentions and actions. But David goes further, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. All together. God knows the whole thing. all The, the all and the parts. He knows it all together. And you haven't even done it or said it yet. Whoa. These are not truths that... Most here are unaware of or who would resist. But like Spurgeon is saying, it's good for this holy song to cast clear light even to the uttermost parts of the sea of our hearts and lives and warn us against that practical atheism. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, or what your life's circumstances are. God knows it all full well, every bit of it. He hasn't missed anything you are not unnoticed, and nothing can be concealed from God. David said elsewhere in Psalm 69:5, Oh God, you know me fully. You know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Think of it this way. It's as if every action, every intention of our heart was done right before the throne of God. Think of it that way sometime. The the decisions or actions that I'm about to do are being done right before the presence of God and to be scrutinized by him. It's a very sobering way to think, very sobering term uh, to to think of it in. And, And even though we know God is omniscient, and we could argue those truths theologically, we'd say, oh yes, yes, God is omniscient. We, we would argue that. We live as if it were not so. And this is the practical atheism that Spurgeon is speaking of. Yet the revelation that God knows us fully and continually is also incredibly encouraging for those who are redeemed. There's never a moment when his caring eye is unaware of our struggles and pains. There's never an instant when his loving, provident hand lacks the knowledge of our true needs and benefits, ever. All of God's loving care for us is led by his infinite knowledge. Just imagine what things would be like if God was supposed to love us but did not have full knowledge. Would not be the greatest love, would it? But we often act like God either doesn't know or doesn't care. Thankfully, he does have full and deep understanding of all things. Really, the omniscience of God is like two sides of a coin. It's fearful and awesome on one side, but is deeply encouraging and comforting on the other. Just look at verse 5. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. This word hem, the New Testament translated it enclosed. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translated it encircled. Hemmed, encircled, enclosed. All of these words help to give the sense or the meaning of the word because the primary meaning in the Hebrew is besieged. It's interesting. Imagine a city that's surrounded by a massive, mighty army that's pressing in on the city so there literally remains no way of escape. That's the picture here that's being given by David. This may be a way of David transitioning from God's omniscience to his omnipresence, but the, but the idea that God surrounds our life and knows your life Uh, so that there is no way for you to avoid it, it is pretty astounding. There's no aspect of your life that is out of control or misses his notice. He lays his hand on you, David says. Have you ever caught a bug in your house? Let's say you found a grasshopper and you picked it up in your hand and you cupped it like this and you took it outside and let it go. Have you ever done that? I don't intend to diminish the, the value of man created in God's image by likening you to a bug, but that's the best idea I can use to describe this, that God cups you with his hand. He is around you. He surrounds you. There is no aspect of your life that is out of his control or his notice or his presence There is no way for mankind to escape God's notice and his presence. For the one who does not love God and trust him, this is a very scary thought. Man's guilt will not escape God's notice or his judgments. But for the redeemed, this is comforting because you will not escape his perfect loving care. Ever. Your loving Heavenly Father is never unaware and never lacks control. Such a comforting thought that dispels fear, is it not? David says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God's power is so awesome, he says, even more so when you stop and meditate on it. Just really think it through and take it, let it travel its course. It's more than David can handle. There's no end to the implications of this. But I wonder if there could be more to his statement here. I, I don't know when David wrote this psalm. No one, know, no one knows. There's, there's no instance in his life where we can place this and say this is when this occurred. But my gut tells me that this was in the latter part of his life, latter half. I mean, just a personal guess. One could imagine David looking back over his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband to cover it up, the tragic consequences on his household and on the nation, his sin of counting the people, all his failures in life and his failures as a ruler of God's people. He says, God knows every part of all my failures with perfect knowledge, even the intentions of my heart, even before I did them. But, God from all of eternity knew all of these things and still has always loved David and God still honored him by by planning for the Messiah to sit on his throne. To come from his line. To be called the son of David. David says, how can this be? It's too wonderful. I can't grasp this. We We don't know if this was the, the time period or the thoughts that were going on in David's head, but it's all true, is it not? David is astounded by God's powerful omniscience and now he turns and meditates on his omnipresence. Verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Two, two rhetorical questions. What's the obvious answer to his rhetorical questions? Nowhere. Nowhere. Where are you going to go? There's no place you can go where God is not present. To make the point, David uh, points to a hypothetical example. He says in verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The word for heaven here is actually a plural noun. Um, it, It would really... You know, in the Hebrew, it's a plural. It would really be better translated heavens. But it includes the physical, visible sky that arches over his head from from, from end to end. But it also invo- includes the celestial heavens above him, stars and the planets that you can see at night. It includes... Everything up above, but the Hebrew language also includes in that word, heaven, the abode of God. So it simply points to everything that is above and lofty, as high as you can go. On the other hand, Sheol speaks of the grave where the dead are laid. Furthermore, it, it refers to the idea of an underworld or a holding place for the souls of the dead. In other words, you can ascend as high as you possibly can and you can go as low as you can imagine and everywhere in between is God's presence is there. It's another merism. The heavens and Sheol and everything in between. In verse 9 he says, And if I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Have you ever watched the sun come up in the morning and the sun peaks up over the hills and wham, it flies over as far as you can see that way, and it lights everything up. I think that's the picture here. So you could start with where the sun comes up in the east. It, take, it, it takes up wings, or if you could take up wings, and shoot across the entire sky as far out to the west into the remotest par- over the remotest parts of the sea. Everything that I can see. David touches on all the extremes. As high as you can go, as low as you can go. As far east as you can go, as far west as you can go. And everything in between. It's a poetic way of saying all extremes, horizontal and vertical, everywhere in between. God is there. His presence is there. There's no place where he is not. You can't escape him no matter where you go. He says... Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Again, as, as in verse 5, verse 10 produces either comfort or fear, one or the other. For those who reject God and, and want to be a God for themselves, it's a fearful warning. You can't run and you can't hide from God. You can't do it. There's no one, nowhere, where you can hide where God cannot lay hold of you. And there's a day that's coming where he will lay hold of all who've rejected his son and he will judge them mercilessly. On the other hand, all who love God and are loved by God are led by him and his presence is ever with you at all times. His hand is still laid upon you. It is still over you. He holds you and he leads you even in the direst situation that life can possibly bring to you. He knows it even before it all occurs. Even before it's happening, He knows that's occurring and He is there. His hand still is laid upon you. It is still over you and He holds you and leads you. And He will will never be separated from His loving presence or his loving care of your life as Matt covered in Psalm 1 or uh, excuse me Psalm 23 another psalm of David quote he restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake you cannot be removed from his presence and his care for his namesake he's with you always and cares for you always but wait, David says, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night. Cover me literally means to fall upon, like, like a thief falling upon his victim to prevail over him. That's this word. Surely darkness will prevail over me like a, like a thief attacking me. God will no longer be able to see what is happening. God won't know because of the darkness. no. It doesn't matter how dark your situation is. Everything is seen by God and He is there. Even the darkness is not dark with you, God. The night is bright as day, for darkness is light with you. Things can seem so dark to us, loss, pain, disappointment, but it's not so with God. It's not dark to Him. This sin-cursed world is, is so dark to us, but it is not dark with God. Nothing's hidden from his eyes. Nothing's out of his control. His presence is everywhere. He fully sees, he fully knows the reasons for it all, and he knows what will be the end result. Nothing is hidden. His redemptive plan for you, God's greatest good, are all part of what's going on. For us, darkness conceals it and we don't see it, right? We look at this sin-cursed world, we see what's going on and it makes no sense. We have the things happening in our life, it makes no sense. With God it does. For us, darkness conceals it. With God, everything is completely visible as if the most powerful blazing light was illuminating it. He is right there And he is with you, and he sees you. He covers you, he leads you, he is with you, and he sees everything. Because he is our omniscient and omnipresent God. But he's also omnipotent. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. And your soul knows it full well. You know that you're created by God, and you are exactly what God wanted. You are no accident. You are not random. You are crafted by God through his mighty creative power. In fact, the soul of all man, souls of all mankind know that this is true. They know that. Romans 1 tells us, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. What greater manifestation of, of, of God's power and nature can be clearly seen than in mankind who was created in the image of God? How much more clear could you get than that? It doesn't mean, when we say man was created in God's image, it doesn't mean that God looks like us physically. That's not what we're talking about. It means that the nature of God is visible and resident in mankind in a way that it's not seen in the rest of the creation. All of creation is a testimony of God's great power and authority, but mankind is the greatest testimony of all. And this is why abortion is so wicked, God, God crafts and creates what his great wisdom has designed and man decides to try and overthrow God's will by destroying the person that God has created in his own image. But you are a specific design created through God's perfect wisdom. And David breaks out in praise, as should we all. Just think about the magnificent blessings and benefits that are ours just from having been created by God. Just that one reality. He has always known us, and now he's created us. And what a creation. Just consider your physical makeup. Look at the intricacies of your circulatory system, your digestive system, our eyes, our ears, our muscles, and on and on and on. Any one of those will leave you in awe. Just the study of our anatomy should leave us in in such a state of awe it should cause us to worship God. David did not possess the knowledge of modern medical science, but he marveled at the power of God's wisdom in man just in creating man. Additionally, look at man's intellect and reason. Look at his power to create. Look at his power to reign over those aspects of the creation around him. Look at his emotional state. Look at his spiritual parts. David is essentially saying, these works are your works, God. All the intricacies of my life are created by you. I praise you, your great creative power has done this. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. There's, there's some debate over this phrase, depths of the earth, but I believe in the simple understanding is womb. I think, I think David is being poetic here. I think his point is that an infant in the womb is hidden from sight and knowledge, just like if you buried something deep in the earth or something that was deep down in the earth and you just didn't know about it. When, when a baby's in the womb, we don't know what they will look like. We don't know their personality yet, who they will marry, what their career will be like whether they will be wicked or righteous, how long they will live, and so, so much more. We can't see anything. We can't observe it. For us, it's all buried and unseen, just as if it was buried underground. But God, by his great power and wisdom, fashions it all. It, It resides there because he did it. He has intricately woven your life together. Just like some fine embroidery containing numerous threads and various colors, God has woven every aspect of your life together to be exactly what he intended. No one else could, could even see the outside even today we have ultrasound and we can see this blurry image and say it's a boy or a girl, but we don't see any of this. No one can see, the, can see even the outside yet, but God knows every part because he created you in all your complexity. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. A draftsman or architect can be impressed by the complexity of his drawings for a big building or a, a big bridge project. But they are nothing. They are puny, minuscule, compared to the complexity and the wisdom behind God's design of you, written in his book before anything, or anything was even there. God designed these things. Before you existed, what power, what amazing power, the power of a great God who has created and fashioned everything according to His great wisdom and nothing can escape His hand. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. David was overcome by the thought. The workings of God are so vast. His, his mind is about to explode. I can't contain this. It would be easier to count the grains of sand on the beach, is what he's saying. You know that if you started... Here's a bit of trivia. you started counting right now, and every second you counted another grain of sand, it would take you almost 32 years to count a billion grains of sand, and you would just barely be getting started. That's his point. It's it's absurd. You better get started if you want to start counting today. But how precious are God's thoughts? What... When, when, David says, he says, I lay down to sleep. God is working all these things out according to the counsel of his will. When he sleeps, God is still doing it. God doesn't rest. He doesn't need to rest. God is still doing it. The fact that David stops meditating on these things when he goes to sleep doesn't mean God stopped. God is still doing it, even though he's oblivious to it. He's sleeping. Which is why David concludes with a very humble and worshipful response. He says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? I do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I hear your mounds turning. You're thinking Paul's half a bubble off a plum. His elevator doesn't go to the top. What do you mean humble? That's not very humble. That, That sounds very hateful, Paul. What are you talking about? David appears to be very spiteful. Wouldn't that be wicked behavior? That's not humble. No. It is for this reason. David's not offended because they did something to him personally. David is deeply hurt and offended because the greatness of God's magnificent glory, the one who created all and is over all, the God who just... He, he was just meditating on all these things. This is the God is being blasphemed all over the place by wicked humanity. And David can't stand it. God, this shouldn't be. David can't stand that God is, is not receiving the glory that he rightly deserves. David knows that God sees it all. And it's all done right before his presence. And David is incensed with the injustice. So he calls upon God to end the injustice. Stop it, God. Look at verse 23, though. Look at this. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me, in the way everlasting. The entire focus shifts. God discern me, expose me, show me my own ways, expose my heart, my thoughts, my behavior, so I can turn from those things. He knew that the greatest dishonor is when a man so loved by God should dishonor his name. As David says in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When God is dishonored, David felt the pain because he loved God so greatly and understood the magnitude of that injustice. That is true injustice. He might have hated the actions of the wicked, but he also hated his own sin. In 1991, uh, singer Steve Green released an album entitled We Believe. And on the album, he sang a song called Search Me, O God. And I'd like to read you the lyrics just really quickly. He said, Search me, O God, reveal my heart. Expose my sin that it may be confessed. Search me, O God, unveil each thought. And leave no hidden mo- motive unaddressed. Uncover every action born in pride. Show me the worldly ways I still embrace. May every anxious thought be brought to light, and each unspoken fear with faith replace. Search me, O God, observe my life. Bring to mind each idle word I speak. Search me, O God, test my resolve, and alert me where you find it weak. Reveal all weakened walls within my soul. Show me potential dangers unforeseen. Then clothe my conscience with your holiness. Help me guard it well and keep it clean. Search me, O God, that I may walk in peace, filled with the joy of knowing all is well. My heart surrendered and my conscience clean, so great a joy my tongue can scarcely tell. Oh, what joy to know that all is well! I don't believe David feared God's judgment. I, I don't believe David was like, "Okay, God, show me what I did wrong, so I can make it right with you, so you won't be angry with me anymore." I want to get this straightened out. It was a. It. It wasn't about David. And it. And it wasn't about the wicked people around him. It was about God. It was about him, his worthiness. That's the issue. David simply felt such a magnificent God deserves the highest honor and the most praiseworthy conduct. He deserves that. Such an awesome God deserves holy conduct. Such a loving God deserves to be trusted And he was zealous for God. I know I'm going long. And I want to, before I lose you, I want to briefly address a couple of thoughts that go beyond David's conclusion. First, for those here who do not believe in Christ, those who do not trust him completely, I warn you as a concerned friend, God's your creator. You were made by him, you were made for him, and you are accountable to him for all that is done. Even the intentions of your heart are judged by him. What is more concerning is that the standards by which you are judged are his standards, not yours. They are not your standards. You can feel good about comparing yourself with certain individuals around you and say, well, I'm better than that guy. But you will never match up to the perfect holiness of the God that created you. And he knows you in a way that you cannot fathom, seeing all that is done in secret, even the thoughts and intentions of your heart that occur. All these things will be held in account. Nothing is missed or unnoticed. He is also inescapable. You can't flee from His presence. There's nowhere to go. The one hope for you is Jesus Christ who sacrificed Himself for you. And When you turn from your sin and your unbelief and you acknowledge your guilt and you ask for life and forgiveness, it's given freely by God to you. You must completely trust in Christ Give it completely over. You don't earn forgiveness, but Christ has earned it for you. God, through Christ, lovingly gives to you what you could never gain or attain on your own. For those here who do believe, this psalm is so encouraging. It is so encouraging. Encouraging because God's perfect love permeates his attributes. If it were not so, he would not contain the perfect love and he would not be the source of love. He can love you with the most perfect love because he is the only one who has the power and the knowledge to do so. And so I ask you to insert yourself in the psalm and you will see that he knows he is always with you. He has infinite power to accomplish his perfect will and your greatest good even when you can't see it because of the darkness. God is working these things out, and I pray these things bring you comfort and hope. I truly do. And may our lives bring to him the the greatest possible glory because he rightly deserves that. So, Father, we praise and honor and glorify you. Father, how magnificent is your great name. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would search our hearts, that we would be at peace, trusting your hand, and that every motivation would be to that aim. What astounding love, everlasting love that you have lavished on us, Father. Help us, Father, to take our eyes off ourselves and to see your glory and to give that to you which you rightly deserve. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.